CJSW 90.9 FM. You don't know what you'll hear next. Maybe we don't either. But it's something great. That's, That's the, the freedom, freedom of radio. Welcome to Rave Dad's Diary the show that explores the globalization of electronic dance music from the perspective of a rural Alberta boy turned raver. I'm your host and resident rave dad, Paul Brooks. Rave Dad's Diary broadcasts on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary at the University of Calgary campus and community radio station located on Treaty 7 land. I acknowledge the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Siksika, the Pagani, and Kaina First Nations, the Sutina First Nation, and the Stony Nakoda. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Welcome to Episode 23 of Rave Dad's Diary. Calgary-based artist Little Snake's debut album dropped last week on Brain Feeder Records. It's called A Fragmented Love Story Written by the Infinite Helix. And it's a mind scraper. On today's show, I'm airing a recut of my conversation with Little Snake, which originally aired in January 2021. After our chat... Little Snake takes over the program and walks us through music that inspires them. You don't want to miss this. I got turned on to Armand Tobin through my sister Leah. Um, who's also like relative in the Calgary scene. And she was just like giving me LimeWire MP3 downloads to my like not even iPod at the time. And like an iRiver? She was just like, yeah, something the like Zune. that. And yeah, it was the Zune actually. Yeah. <laughs> and um, she, I don't know how she stumbled upon it. Like she wasn't even going to shows or anything, but she was like, hey, I found this dude named Amon Tobin. And it was like something from Isam or something. And I was like, this is really, really crazy. Like, it was, like, kind of beautiful, kind of this dubstep-y vibe. Like, just went to Nero was, like, coming into play. And um, I was like, wow, this is, like, super, super incredible. And I kind of put it down for, like, three or four years as I started getting into, like, you know, production of hip-hop and um, house music and techno music. And then finally come back, like, years later, I was in L.A. and Amon Tobin... Um, was talking to my label manager at the time and he was like, yeah, little snake has been putting out like crazy, crazy tunes. And my label manager told me about that. And I was like, what the fuck? He was like a genius. Like it still holds true to this day. And sure enough, um, Amon wanted us to come to his studio in LA. And so we all decided to go. It was like me and a couple of friends from this label, Renraku and the label head. And Leo was there, I believe. And, we walk up this huge like Hollywood Hill and there's um, a McLaren parked outside of 
the like this mansion in a row of houses that like definitely did not seem like it would be anywhere close to Amon's house. But this one stood out so much that we were like, well, this clearly doesn't look like Amon Tobin's house, but it's the only one that's like unique from the rest of the houses. It's probably Amon's house. So we message him and he's like, yeah, just come inside, let yourself in. I'm in the studio. And we go, we find the studio. And as soon as we open the studio door, it's like pitch black in there, except for the modular lights. And a, like a ray of sunshine kind of just comes into the studio and he gets like angry at us. He's like, oh God, like, why would you do that? Like, <laughs> don't like close the door, get in and close the door. And from there on out, he was the nicest guy. You could tell he'd just been in the studio for like probably three or four days. Like it wasn't like a, uh, a situation where he left it a lot. And, um, we briefly commented and he said, I'm sitting on about seven albums right now under different aliases and working on a two fingers one. And we were all like, Oh, we can't wait for that two fingers one. And then it was just kind of like this nice weird encounter where we had met like one of all of our idols. And then months later he had messaged me and he was like, Hey, I just like, I don't know why I didn't think of it before, but it, the two fingers like LP seems to really be lining up with the sound you're going for. Do you want to write a track for it? I was like, sure enough, like, let's get it. So yeah, I think like later that day we wrote the entire track. Aside from your collaboration on the two fingers project, Eamon Tobin appeared on a release that came out near the end of 2020 titled loophole. Tell me more about that project. Loophole was interesting because he i feel like i tried to really really commandeer like this um specific specific concept and it was more of a narrative concept that was going along with another project um it seemed like it served this really functional purpose of being an interlude that was also a wormhole you know like it was this interlude of many different sounds but it also brought you into a new dimension and that's how you got out of the original like palette of sounds and his take on it was that he kind of wanted to just make some sort of track where we would like take hit for hit shot for shot a different sound design method so throughout this weird kind of like process of you know he wanted to juxtapose our sound designs and I wanted to introduce this narrative. It all kind of somehow just fell into place. Like it just made perfect sense and everybody was happy at the end. But at the same time, it left me with this raw feeling of like, damn, I didn't get exactly how I wanted it, you know? (laughs) So it was, it was interesting, but it seemed to work out in this weird esoteric, like perfect sense. And yeah, kind of a once in a lifetime collab. Just Coming in at the end of 2020, I saw you posting about the new Grand Theft Auto update and Mm -hmm. your music being included in the update with artists like Flying Lotus, uh, MF Doom, RIP. Uh, Are you into the GTA franchise? Uh, Were you into it before this? Yes, definitely. I mean, like I... I had found out about Flylo before GTA, but like I remember when GTA 5 came out and there was a Flylo FM thing. I was like, oh, like Flylo is dope. Like I'd love to like go play that for Flylo FM. And then like, sure enough, play GTA 5 like strictly for like three or four years. Cause I'm young, I'm 22. So when GTA 5 came out, like I was a kid playing video games. Like it was like, it was my time to shine. And uh, 
Then while GTA was out and I was playing it, I got into contact with Flying Lotus for Brain Feeder. And then sure enough, I, it was weird. I basically got to watch the evolution of like my love for Flylo, my love for Grand Theft Auto, and then my personal attachment to all those two things like expand infinitely. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. I mean, uh, what did that feel like when you did you get to play the game recently and, and hear your own song in the game? Yeah, it's it's uh I've been playing it like frequently I would say just to get the full effect because I feel like if I like just play it and like fully take it in and just sit there and listen to my song and drive around like I I'm just going to psychotically break or something like it's <laughs> it's like this like kind of uh it seems too much it's too good to be true almost at this point so I've been kind of like playing it here and there and just letting it sink in over time. I was uh, checking out the 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 Moody Man uh, like set that that was included in the new update, <laughs> and uh, the the set like it 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 bangs, but yeah. also it really hit me in an emotional way. It was I was I blown away by this uh, club experience that had been uh, created and like the Moody Man avatar and. Um, the crowd sounds, you know, it was like a, a for 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 somebody who spent so much time in in nightclubs. I was, uh, yeah, it was kind of an, an emotional moment for me. What it was, yeah, it was it was really a homage to rave life that like they really pinned down to the head. Like it was great. <laughs> so yeah. I mean, obviously these these video games, like they and, and the way that music is synchronized in them now, is having yeah. a, a huge impact on a generation of, of of producers and music makers like yourself. Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, in perspective, this was just the online update. So uh, while a lot of the GTA players that are still playing GTA are playing online. <laughs> It's not the initial shock of like, you know, the game just came out and, you know, you're like checking out Flylo for the first time. And then this is one of the fresh sounds you hear. It's it still is kind of this like embedded thing into game players that have been playing this game for years. That is a new thing to them. But at the same time, like when you do take something, for example, of like a new game with a new radio station that's that's a young kid's music taste for the rest of his life like <laughs> that could quite possibly dictate you know what he listens to forever in 2020 we saw a lot of artists and brands take a stand for their values and when i first met you when you were younger i just i remember you really standing by your convictions i'm wondering where where that part of you comes from an interesting take um i i think that part of me comes from I, I guess now it's a bit more tangible i have personal marginalizations that i can touch on a little bit but i'm probably not going to touch on too much i'm disabled and pansexual and that's on its own is a pretty harsh like intersect and i can relate to more intersects throughout that marginalizations um and i think that's a, in general a good foundation of like you know standing true to your morals because those typically those intersects typically you know breed the best morals for a lot of people and um that in a really tangible sense that's where it's at i think at the end of the day it's pretty simple like we in terms of my values socially i do think a lot of these issues 
are brought to the attention of the general public now. A lot of them are to do with people dying. For example, like the Black Lives Matter movement, people are straight up dying, you know. And when you turn a blind eye, it's 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 nothing less than direct and like intentional so at this point it's just kind of like a it's a amount of self-responsibility i have of just making sure i don't turn a blind eye to parts of myself i don't like and making sure we collectively do that and um holding each other accountable to making sure that we all take accountability for you know everybody <laughs> you know it's it, it's interesting the, the the type of music that you make um, juxtaposed with uh, you know the the values I see you express uh, personally and, and through your, your your social media accounts. Um, in, in that, in, in my experience, the more left leaning and abstract electronic music genres have been uh, dominated by white men and predominantly like a white fan base. Um, I think that that's changing, but what is your perspective as an artist working at the vanguard of these sounds? Uh, does does that stereotype uh, hold true, or is it is it is it changing? Um, it is changing for sure. I I think. Thank you for bringing that up. I think that the one thing that we are not paying attention to the most and it's the one reason it's really not kind of uh a forefront of equality is that we interpersonally as white people don't hold each other accountable for making sure everybody gets an equal chance like there's you know every now and then it'll be this like experimental based lineup of like all women but the title like the title of the show is just all women you know like it's like it seems like the actions we are taking are super performative and then the actions we don't take just are accepted as the regular and i think it really really is just a certain matter of you know booking diverse lineups and not out of meeting a quota but for the sake of there is crazy crazy talent out there that we're turning a blind eye to it's really it's really just a matter of looking like there's so much good talent from every marginalization and it's up to us as white people to you know give that person a chance and give them a, like a pedestal essentially when the black lives matter movement was at the center of attention in mid 2020 you did a fundraiser for black trans sex workers how did you raise money and why did you raise money for that group specifically? Sure. Yeah. Um, it seemed like obviously it was the height of kind of a conscious revolution. One of the bigger revolutions we had had, not only in uh, our conscious minds, but in the civil rights movement. And I just wanted to use whatever voice I had, however small in the most impactful way possible. Cause that's, you know, what you should be doing in that time. <laughs> it's not really about that. Um, so I I had I had these test pressings from something I was going to press the vinyl. I think there was about 10 of them. And uh, I we decided not to press it to vinyl, but we had all these test pressings. And we were like, what do we do with these? Like, you know, should we just like throw them out? What do we do? <laughs> and um, we decided that we had slowly caught on that a lot of people would catch on to the shit, you know, like vinyl heads are vinyl heads. They're going to go crazy for this on Discogs either way. 
So we set like kind of a fair price. I think it was fifty dollars a TP, and we um, picked a few GoFundmes for Black trans lives, uh, specifically sex workers, and it, it it was mostly revolved around the concept of like the highest marginalization you could have as a black person. And for us in the time, the thing that made the most sense is like sex worker, trans woman. Um, so if you are black and you have all these other marginalizations going on, you are in the limelight for a certain amount of time, but there are like, you know, being a black trans sex worker woman is not a rare thing. There's a lot of them, you know, and it's great that we highlighted so much general black issues, but at the same time, like this is going to be something that is going to come and go. And it did, you know, in a lot of senses it did. And the one thing that is almost like ashamed, like it, it seems like we are like putting shame on these super super marginalized groups for even bringing it close to attention and then just taking it right from their face we didn't go as far to like you know even bring light to that and they're still in the position they are now but obviously um i think a lot of those gofundmes got some some notable hype and i'm glad that some impact was made but it seemed like we there was just a lot of face value uh change being done and we had a chance to like kind of step forward into a really, really, really big conscious revolution and civil rights movement. And it just kind of happened with, we repeated history really. <laughs> your, your social media is pretty lit from, from, from my standards. And I see your fans engaging with you and uh, really rallying around uh, some of these social justice topics that we're, we're talking about. Can you describe your fan base to me? Who who listens to Little Snake? Uh, it's it's strange because I've kind of pulled from like several different crowds. The three main ones that seem to um, spark an interest are, you know, the experimental bass scene, fans of G Jones, fans of Eprom, and so on and so forth, and then fans of Brain Feeder. You know, the people that have been there since they won, since the beat scene days. Um, so a lot of people that are just kind of open-minded experiencing thing that gets thrown at them, whether it's electronic or jazz or whatever. And then uh, the third kind of sub realm of that is a lot of IDM people and post IDM people. So, you know, fans of Aphex, fans of Venetian and whatnot. And um, it's, it's, it's interesting because I can't really pinpoint the views specifically each one of these scenes has, but they do collide and have conflict every now and then but the beautiful part of that too is that they often um, learn from each other in ways that you know genres would learn from each other You're listening to Rave Dad's Diary on 90.9 FM CJSW, broadcasting out of the University of Calgary on Treaty 7 land. You just heard my conversation with Calgary-based producer and Brain Feeder affiliate, Little Snake. 
Little Snake's debut album dropped in early May, and it's called A Fragmented Love Story, written by the Infinite Helix. Buy the album on Bandcamp, and while you're at it, get yourself some Little Snake merch. It's super cool. Okay, up next, I turn the mic over to Little Snake. Hey, how's it going? My name is Little Snake, and you're tuned into Rave Dad's Diary, a show on CJSW. Um, if you're listening to this, you've probably just listened to our podcast interview that we just did, and I'll be taking over the next hour or so um, with a bit of a mix of sorts. I'm doing this more in kind of a uh, radio format, and the concept behind it is I'm going to look at tracks throughout our generations, me and Paul being from almost an entirely different generation span, and in no particular mathematical division or order or anything um i'm kind of be i'm kind of going to be slowly you know going from paul's era to mine and taking it from kind of my approach of idm and post idm and experimental edm and um seeing the origins definitely from back to when paul was born and you know where i'm at now and maybe play some some of my tracks at the end so We'll probably be going through about a dozen tracks and um, just looking at the correlations between. Um, the first track I want to take you through is a Curtis Rhodes track, who obviously is a very, very big inspiration for me. If you don't know who Curtis Rhodes is, he um, co-founded and popularized the term granular synthesis and the concept of it, um, which is pretty much very, very widely used in major EDM, experimental EDM today, all over the place, even pop sometimes. And um, he, I teach a lot of his theories and classes and private lessons. Uh, I open most of my classes with his statements and he has just more or less been in, in a really, really insane inspiration for me over the past years. And um, it took some digging to find this, but uh, funny enough, this track was release the same year Paul was born, which seemed really fitting. Um kind of a full circle gap and tie in between those two generations. But um yeah, this one's called N N score N S C O R. Took a lot of digging to find. It seems like it's Curtis Rhodes' first ever released track and even then his new release tracks aren't very um uh, widely available, so I'm very, you know, lucky to have found this. And for a track from, you know, the early '80s or late '80s, rather, it seems to have uh, seems to have held up to some of the craziest standards we have in IDM today. So, give it a listen. Um, you're tuning into Rave Dad's Diary on CJSW.
So once again, that was a Curtis Rhodes track. That was N-S-C-O-R by Curtis Rhodes. And once again, that was that was started in 1980 and finished around 1987. So honestly, holds up to be beyond some of the granular synthesis I can achieve today after my years of trying, you know, different granular techniques. It's it's really cool to see Curtis Rhodes and his projects this far back and, you know, how amazing, uh, just sonically amazing they sound. But I'd highly recommend you do some more information on Curtis Rhodes if that interests you. But just to give a little background, a lot of this um, sound was uh, basically generated through punch cards of, you know, microseconds that were inserted in different, you know, tones. And he would punch out whatever 10 milliseconds there would be of um, a sound and run it through this huge, huge machine. And he'd wait weeks and weeks to have like a 10 second clip. So obviously this track took a while, but it's really cool to see, you know, such amazing, amazing uh, work come out of such just technologically unavailable times and hold up to this day, I guess. So that's really cool. Um, Moving on to kind of a correlated thing. We're taking it a few years forward to about um, roughly coming up on the 2000s here. This is more so the 90s, 98 type deal. Um, We're looking at Atekra's original project, their debut called Lego Feet. Um, And this is their self-titled. This is a track off that. And it's interesting because you can hear elements of um, granular within this track. However, they were in a, a whole different continent doing a whole different thing at the time with, you know, Acid House on the Rise and Techno. And um, it's really cool to see these borders cross with no internet at the time. And uh, it'll be cooler to see how they mash up and become intertwined and, um, you know, morph into each other as the time goes. But I think it's really interesting that uh, granular synthesis and granular sounds kind of went dormant as soon as the IDM scene and, you know, the UK came up. It almost became like this entirely unheard about thing after Curtis Rhodes releases debut until several years later. And then it started becoming, you know, kind of uh, a main focus in UK IDM, which was almost crazy to me because it's, it's while it is a French technique that Curtis Rhodes kind of founded, um, it is popularized through his work in Cleveland, Ohio and there's just so much weird geographical connections between all of this that even I, after my research of all of this granular synthesis, all of this IDM, I really do not understand how it became, um, you know, connected in the way that it has. And it makes sense for, you know, collective consciousness experiments to happen on their own in their own time. But even a lot of the practices Curtis Rhodes was teaching seem to come up in all these artists like, you know, Atekra, Aphex Twin, Venetian Snares, um, it almost the practices verbatim show up. So pretty interesting to see. Um, again, this is a track by Atekra's debut project called Lego Feet. And uh, you can check that out. You're tuned in to Rave Dad's Diary on CJSW. We'll be right back. 
So yeah, once again, that was a track by Autecra's debut project, their first project ever as Lego Feet off their self-titled first debut album. And um, that was an interesting kind of look, I guess, on what the United Kingdom region was doing with IDM and electronic music at the time and synthesizer music. Um, and while they were kind of focusing more so on, you know, uh, hardware synthesizers, um, of the popularized versions, at least from Roland, like the 303 and the 808 and the 909, um, they had kind of stumbled upon these, uh, granular techniques that was kind of coming up slowly in the United States with Curtis Rhodes, like I said. Um, but the way they were doing it is they were kind of, microsonically dissecting their breaks and their acid patterns through um, beat repeats that were standard to the 808 at the time. And they would do it on such a fine timing, such a fine level that it was creating granular sounds and through filters and whatever they would distort and vary these sounds. And while it is different entire techniques from what Curtis Rhodes was doing a few years prior it had a lot of the same, like, I guess, tones that he was using in the the punch card methods and stuff. And, uh, yeah, it's a really cool take to see how that spans out across regions and time. But um, one thing I was kind of thinking of when I had, you know, selected these two tracks and talked about them is a lot of my, you know, uh, personal work is based on earlier IDM acid influences, 808 influences, and as well as a lot of early Curtis Rhodes granular synthesis. And I think it would be a good time to uh, plug a personal unreleased single from myself um, that kind of takes a glimpse into both the acid IDM early worlds of the UK and the strange kind of microsonic um, you know, no tempo sound design that was coming from Curtis Rhodes' granular exper experimentations. So um, this is a collab with a really, really cool dude I know named Sabroy. He uh, codes in DSP and makes music in Max for Alive as well as Ableton and just in general, a crazy galaxy brain dude. I've learned more from him about music than I have anything on the internet. But uh yeah, here's our collaboration. It's called Decimation of Movement Over Time. Yeah. <laughs> 
Once again, you are tuned into Rave Dad's Diary on CJSW. Um, so we took a look at one of my tracks just now. Um, I am Little Snake, if you just tuned in. Uh, that was a unreleased track called Decimation of Movement Over Time featuring Sabroy. It's an unreleased track. Um, so with that track, like I said earlier in the show, it was kind of a sonic example of these experimentations and granular synthesis that was coming out of, you know, the 1980s and kind of a peek into, um, so the, the, uh, early experiments with synthesizer music in, um, the United Kingdom at the time. And, uh, it kind of fuses the two together in a way that works and holds up in the modern era of music, you know, EDM, so to speak. And, um, what's cool about this is, when I was getting into this sort of fusion style of this old experimental stuff and the new experimental stuff and so on and so forth, where I was getting a lot of this inspiration from was uh, these really cool producers that I found through the EDM scene, ironically enough. Um, G. Jones and Eprom are great examples of that. Uh, and, you know, their whole vein, everybody within that scene, they kind of you know, fuse these two elements together before I'd even heard of them independently, whether it was IDM or, you know, granular experiments from the 1980s. But um, I was really inspired by all of this. And throughout these pieces, I kind of completely segregated myself from, uh, you know, the EDM scene and anything related to it, including these two artists. But I guess it was kind of a full circle moment going into this that I'd realized that it was in fact a fusion of these two or three elements from different points in time. And those two or three elements seem to be my favorite across, you know, the history of electronic music. And um, yeah, so like I said, those two producers I brought up earlier, earlier, Gene Jones and Eprom, um, here is one of my favorite tracks by them. It's called Demon Veil and uh, self-released probably, I think, 2019 August. Um, and 
yeah, here's a peek of some of my inspirations before I knew the original inspiration of that inspiration. Uh, you're listening to CJSW, Brave Dad's Diary. see every torch go up. I want to see every light to go up. I want to see the most noise on this beach when you hear that bass line.
So like I said, that was a really, really good track by G. Jones and Eprom called Demon Veil. And um, like I was saying earlier, if you're just tuning in, this is kind of a modern day example that inspires my work a lot. Um, it is kind of this perfect fusion between early IDM experiments through synthesizers, um, uh, you know, breakbeats, 303s, whatnot, and kind of a... Um, really, really refined take on the early granular experiments that Curtis Rhodes and his, you know, accompanying fellow artists were doing. And, um, this is a lot of what inspired me before I had found out either of these, uh, early influences from G Jones or Eprom. Um, so digging a bit further into this, uh, just now, I guess really, one thing I'm realizing is the kind of link and the glue between the old and the new within, you know, my work and G Jones and Eprom's work is kind of this element of like hip hop. It's this like dark, hard, uh, kind of just gangster, you know, 808 snare every now and then. And, uh, you know, just thumping kicks and the patterns within it, even the tempo sometimes. And, um, you know, I guess what we're really forgetting throughout all this is while Curtis Rhodes did popularize and, um, you know, kind of work on these new experiments with granular and, um, you know, Venetian snares and Autecra um, kind of popularized a lot of the IDM trends along with Aphex Twin. Uh, you know, Acid House and it's entirely house music techno is basically a black queer owned genre to this day. And it's really just um, these artists were kind of taking it and doing their own thing with it. But at the end of the day, this is a very, very, um, a very BIPOC oriented and queer oriented scene that we are capitalizing on at the end of the day as white people. And um, just to pay tribute to that, I'd like to take a moment to, play another track that kind of glues um and you know recaps everything we've talked about from the uh idm influences of house and techno and acid and the granular experiments of um you know early experimental producers and the hip-hop elements um this next track is by somebody i look to up to highly uh flying lotus the track is called clock catcher and um it's interesting because this track kind of came out uh in the early la beat scene pioneering days and it uh it kind of hit that sweet spot of you know hip-hop production and idm and um, experimental synthesis music but when it came out at the time it was more so just kind of distributed locally throughout um you know california and throughout that it got, became super super popular but it, i don't think a lot of people had really you know paid attention so much to that point when lotus had brought all these works together and it just kind of came off as this entirely new thing that seems so original. While it is quite original, it definitely shows its influences on its sleeve. And um, it's it's really just kind of a shock to the senses, even to this day, hearing it. Um, and, you know, what it tickles within us that we like in other music we've heard. So once again, this is a track called Clock Catcher by Flying Lotus. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> 
Hello, my name is Ohama, and I grew up.